Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, so it's time for a Just Jack show. It's we got me and a subject, and we'll break it down and work it out together. Uh, episode 2399 of the Survival Podcast. So tomorrow we turn another one of those... You know, mental milestones. It really is no different to be 2399 than 2400, but there's something about when you, you tick off those hundreds, and that puts us 100 away from episode 2500. And I was wondering if you guys thought we should do anything special for episode 2500. Episode 500 and episode 1000, we had people call in and talk about the difference this community has made in their life. The episode 1000 went five hours. I gave people, I think, two and a half minutes each, and we went over five hours, like five hours and 45 minutes. Um, don't know if we want to do that again or not. I'm certainly up for it if you guys are, but if anybody out there has any thoughts about what we should do for episode 2500 to make it special, now would be the time to start thinking it when we're about 101 episodes out. Uh, and again, tomorrow we will turn that episode 2400. Today, here's what I got for you. I, I decided it was time to talk about this concept of individual revolution, individual insurrection, and personal freedom again. Because we are, we are heading straight into Ask Clown Circus 2020. And it's really easy to get sucked in and believe that these politicians on either side of the aisle really care about you and really want to do anything for you, and they're really not out for themselves. And even those, I will tell you that I, you know, I'm not as pessimistic as I sound. I do believe that some people that serve in government really do think they're helping, And they do poorly because they're incompetent or stupid. Uh, I, I really believe that. There's people that just, they're dumb. They really shouldn't be a congressperson or whatever. Um, I do believe some do their very best and they know what should be done and they can't do it. And they really can't get anything accomplished. Uh, my nephew was a, uh, he's going to law school uh, starting this fall. And his, his goal in life up until this year was to one day be a congressman at least. That was his, his goal, his aspirations. And he worked for uh, a, co a congressman that I will not name, actually a senator, and as a uh, you know an intern for uh, a cycle. And when I spoke to him this, this winter, when he was home for Christmas, I said, so you still want to be a congressman? He said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. He's like, the government can't do anything. So I think there is the, there's the incompetence and the incapable, and then there's the absolute malice. But let's say that this world was one of unicorn farts and rainbows, and everybody in that system went to Washington or went to your state capitol and really did, even though they might differ with you about how, really did have your best interest at heart. That system is so screwed and has so much power and exerts so much control over your life, it still wouldn't be of your direct benefit. It is still going to put impediments in your life. It is still going to restrict your liberty. And you don't control it. You don't control it. You can have the catharsis of every two years taking some boxes if you want to. I won't take it away from you. But I'll tell you, you do not exert any control over it. But you do exert control over your own life. And it's up to you to see the actual restrictions in your life and mitigate them and the phantom restrictions in your life and cast them aside. That's what we're going to talk about today because we're really heading to a ramped up time when people are going to lose sight of that. Before we do, though, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, 
is the original Survival Podcast sponsor, Safe Castle Royal. Safe Castle is just an amazing company. They have everything you can need for your prepping, from the practical to the tactical, and everything in between. But you, you might wonder, well, why do you call them the original Survival Podcast sponsor? They went first. Vic Rontala was the first person that ever emailed me and said, Jack, we would like to sponsor the Survival Podcast. And back then, it was so early on, actually, that I said, no. I said, no. And she's like, what do you mean, no? Like, I don't have enough. I have like 200 people listening when they, when they ask to sponsor the show. I'm like, let me get a few thousand, and we'll talk. And I did, and we did, and they came on board as a sponsor. And this January was Safe Castle's 10th year sponsoring TSP. 10 years. Loyalty is a two-way street, folks. Make sure you think of them when you need something for your prepping. Loyalty, pff, how about Jeff the Murky Guy Gleason? Jeff came on like a couple months later. He's also one of the original group. Like I should actually say, I should go back and figure out who's the original group. Who's like the people that are left that came on board in 2009, uh, winter of 2009. And, it, and there's probably half. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Well, Jeff came on board. He's always stuck with us. He's always taking care of this audience. And you know what you're going to get from the Berkey guy. Berkey water filtration systems and the accessories and everything else that goes with them. You'll also find a lot of other really great products available on his website at directive21.com. He does do a discount for MSB members, so check out your benefits section before you buy from the Berkey guy. But you know this. If something goes wrong, when you order something from Jeff, he's going to fix it. I, I, I have no doubt in saying that after almost 10 years. No doubt whatsoever. So when you need your Berkey, don't go get it from some guy that got involved with water filtration last week because his brother told him to that has a table at a gun show. Go to the original and the long-term sponsor, Jeff the Berkey, got Gleason, directive21.com. With that, let's go ahead and plunge headlong into this. Um, here's what I was thinking about when I decided to do this subject today. Americans in particular are very fond of the word freedom, and it's always amazed me how people so attracted to the word freedom can get so upset when somebody cho chooses to use said freedom differently than they do. Over half of the people don't vote. We all know this, but if you tell someone who does vote, you're not going to around an election. You watch them lose their mind. Some of them actually get violent about it. America's main population has no idea what freedom means any longer. They think it basically means go to school and conform, go to college and conform, get a job and conform, pick a side of the dichotomy and conform to that, buy a house with massive debt, get credit cards, obey every law, including the unjust ones. Never speak a single negative word about a teacher, a cop, or soldiers under any circumstances. They are all heroes, every single one of them, always. A 401k is your total retirement because SSI will be there Just trust the state. Spend 20% of your life in a car going back and forth to pay for a house you will likely never own. Shut up and pay your taxes. It's the patriotic thing to do. We need roads. Work until at least 70, then pray you have enough money to live an okay life until you die. Along the way, never make the sheep uncomfortable. Don't say anything offensive. Never mention a single difference between races or sexes and accept that gender is fluid. Listen to the TV and believe what it tells you. Never question settled science, and you better not ever question a doctor's view on medicine and vaccines. It's totally acceptable to point out the corruption, lies, greed, and malice of the drug companies, but never question the people that sell you the drugs. There are literally hundreds of rules like this 
They're not even laws. Yet society itself enforces them to the point of collective enforced brainwashing. Today we're going to discuss how to pull away from being part of the self-policing monkeys. So what are the self-policing monkeys? I'm going to try to give you the, the quick version of the story. Many of you have heard it before. I've used it a lot. Um, I think I've made it kind of a lot more of a popular story over 10 years. But a science did this experiment one time. They took four monkeys and put them in a cage. They put some bananas up on top of a pole. And, of course, the monkeys are like, bananas. So they go up the pole. And they, they hose them off the pole with a fire hose of co ice cold water. <laughs> monkeys come flying off the pole. They all run and like haul ass. Like, oh, what the hell was that? So finally, I want monkeys like, oh, I'm going to try again. And every time the monkeys touch the pole, they get blasted with the fire hose. So it doesn't go long, and you can have all the bananas you want up there, and monkeys are like, not worth it, man. Don't, don't go there. So they start taking monkeys out. Take one monkey out, put a new monkey in. And the one new monkey, he has no idea. So then they're not going to use the hose anymore. And he goes hauling ass to head to the pole. And the other three monkeys grab him, hold him down. They even get violent with him. They beat his ass. No pole for you. No, you can't go up there. That monkey eventually acquiesces. They take another of the original monkeys out, and the thing repeats itself. Until you end up with four monkeys who have never been sprayed with a hose. They have no idea why they shouldn't go up there after those bananas. They just know that they shouldn't. And when you put a new monkey in there, those monkeys, with no idea why they're doing what they're doing, will get violent to prevent that other monkey from breaking the rules. Welcome to America. That is America today. That is where when you speak your mind, you are met with violent opposition for daring to use your freedom differently than the person next to you. This is the society that we call the freest nation on the planet. And for all of the corruption in government, for all of the massive overreach of government, for all of the threat of violence at the point of gun that government represents, for all of the laws that government passes that we don't need, for the fact that there's a book actually called Three Felonies a Day that says the average person in America, if you were to be you know, tight ass about what the law says, commits three felonies a day. That might be a little bit of an overreach, but three felonies a month wouldn't. Felonies, federal felonies. You probably commit three federal felonies a month. That's how much overreach of the state there is. Fortunately, most of them aren't prosecuted. I don't think the state could afford to prosecute all of them. But, but it does mean that if you really want to get somebody, there's always something you can find. And that's scary. And for all of that, as bad as it is, the majority of things that society conforms to is not a law. It's not a law. It's not even a written rule. In other words, it is kind of a rule that if you grow up in any kind of a family with any kind of financial viability whatsoever, and you get through school with reasonable grades, you're supposed to go to college. It's just a waste not to. That is a rule. But it's not a rule. It's not written down anywhere. It's not like you can say, well, it's not a law, but it's code. Right? There's no standards body that put it out there and says, well, if you don't do this, then you don't do that. Is there? Have you ever thought about it that way? Like, like, how many things in our lives do we feel that we just have to do or have to avoid doing when there's no law that says that's required? It's massive. And it's a big part of how you are controlled and enslaved. It's much easier to have a plantation where your slaves are required to house themselves, feed themselves, provide for their own medical care, 
And if somebody tries to escape the plantation, the other slaves prevent it than it is to have to hire somebody to go get your slave and bring them back to you. And that's, that is the shift in slavery that was made after the Civil War in America. Instead of having a, a, a relatively small number of the total population living in slavery, industry conspired to get most of America to live in what would be more accurately described as a self-applied indentured servitude. And that was really ramped up in po the post-World War II era. And there's a couple of things that happened there that really made this bad. One is the introduction of consumer-level debt. The average American had almost no debt prior to World War II. And not just because they couldn't afford it. They, it just wasn't a thing. And about the only debt that was carried by individuals in America was maybe a little bit of personal debt to a shopkeeper, a line of credit or something like that. And that worked out pretty well. It never got out of hand, right? Because that merchant was only going to let you have so much credit and you could always work some way out to, to make it right. The other kind of debt that they had, if you were farmers, you had debt on things like seed and equipment. And that was a pretty cyclical thing that each year, as long as everything went right, you could pay off your debt and move into the next cycle. Or you had debt on a home. Mortgages were a thing. That was about it. That was really it. After World War II, the first credit cards as we know them came out, and consumer-level debt became a thing. Even back then, you didn't, like, pre-World War II, the cars, you didn't go buy a car on financing. The first person to really blow up financing and make it a thing everywhere was Lee Iacocca. He worked in Philadelphia. He worked for Ford, not Chrysler at the time, and they came up with 40 payments of $100 on any car on this part of the lot. Go pick your car and drive it away, $100 a month for 40 months. And then everybody did it. And all of a sudden, people were collecting debt on everything from cars and trucks and houses to cheap disposable items like transistor radios and shoes being bought with credit cards. And our debt just exploded. And I'm talking about not the country's debt, the personal debt in this country, the consumer debt. At the other time, guns and butter, LBJ and his predecessors, and we're going to solve the poverty problem by making it comfortable to be poor. And all the welfare programs and it led to single motherhood in astronomical rates and divided families. And once those two things happened, the last vestiges of individual freedom in this country from the system, right? Not tyranny of government, tyranny of the system were pretty much wiped out for the average person. They live their entire life in debt and they are subject to everything that comes with it. And It's just, it's just this control of society. And then everybody accepts that it's somebody else's fault, and everybody argues with each other, and the monkeys police themselves. And the only way you can free yourself of this is you have to be very clear on the difference of what you care about and what you can influence and what you can control. Because there's really three spheres. I used to teach this as two spheres. I originally got it from Stephen Covey in The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And I realized over the years, it's not two spheres. It's not circle of influence and circle of concern. It's circle of concern, circle of influence, and circle of control. There's actually three. And you need to spend 90% of your time on your circle of control. 
9% of your time on your circle of influence and 1% maximum percent of your time on your circle of concern. The only point of your circle of concern is to, to check back. Oh, since I'm concerned about this, what does this mean? Is there anything in these other two circles that I can do to mitigate that? Yes, I'll do those. And now see, that's very little attention on the outside. No? Well, then screw it. I'm going to worry about something else. And people seem to think, like, if they do that, like, the world's going to change. I got news for you. Your world will, but the overall world won't. won't. I mean, when I tell people that kind of thing, like, just quit worrying about this shit. The way they react to it, you'd think that, like, if they... It's like a person that can't lose weight. They're kind of doing all the right things. But one of the things that they need to do is stop getting on the scale every day and focus 100% on what they're supposed to be doing and how they feel and being healthy and making sure that they're not using the justification that one pound came off to eat something the next day they shouldn't and just put the scale away. And they act like, if I put the scale away, I'm going to get fat again. No, if you eat Twinkies again, you're going to get fat again. Putting the scale away is just you looking at a number and worrying about it. Instead of saying, do I feel healthier and stronger today than I did yesterday? And that's how people take, look at like the news or voting or whatever. Like, well, if I let go, then everything's just going to go to hell. Like, you're not that important. Your vote's not that important. Your opinion's not that important. And your attention to it is damn sure not that important. So we get away from the concern as much as possible. We even have to be careful with the influence. You do influence your brother-in-law's opinion. Okay? But you can be saying everything the right way. And if he's not ready to hear it, your influence is actually pushing him further away from where he needs to be. He's within your circle of influence. You just don't get to choose what type of influence you're really having. If you focus on your actions instead of telling him what he's doing wrong, then you, have, you, you end up expanding your circle of influence. It gets much bigger and it gets much more proactively effective. Because all of a sudden that brother-in-law is looking at you going, man, everything that person has is great. Look, the way they raise their kids, they're always happy. They always have freedom and time. They're always able to do things. They have money. Now, I, I, I thought it was stupid that they were driving a car for nine years, but now now I kind of see, like, like, it might take that long. That's how that influence gets bigger because most of that is not about trying to influence your brother-in-law or your neighbor or your best friend or your brother or your sister or your mom or your dad or your kids. It's focused on what you can do and letting your results expand the influence themselves. You also, if you're going to do this, you have to fight a guerrilla war. You, you cannot fight a conventional war when it comes to this type of thing. And what I mean by that is, if you look at every successful revolution, insurrection in history, military I'm talking now, the opposition never let off with a full-scale military assault. They didn't have the ability to. They fought a guerrilla warfare. The number one reason the United States was able to beat the British in the Revolutionary War, we ran away. That's why. We ran away. I mean, we ran them near to death by knowing how to live off the land and having local support and engagement and then run away. And run away. Some of the longest retreats were in spirals, basically, during the American Revolution. And then there was a point where you had things set up sufficiently to go into some full-scale assaults. But initially, we ran away. And every successful insurgency works that way. And of course, 
the powers that be always refer to the insurgents as cowards. They're always cowards. Well, they shoot from cover. Well, they're not stupid, idiot, right? It's amazing, like, even if you look at our military, right? So they'll talk about some insurgent over in Afghanistan who is their sniper shooting our people as a coward, and then we praise our snipers as the bravest and best in the world of soldiers. They're doing the same job. They're doing the same job. They're just ones on the other side. I'm not sticking up for the guy on the other side. And I'm not necessarily putting down the guy on this side either. But in the end, to say that one's a coward and the other's a hero, you require a lot of mental gymnastics to do that. And the reason I'm even bringing that up is because you have to give yourself permission to be a guerrilla warrior. And I am back to metaphor now. I'm not talking about going out and shooting at people. Okay? But what I mean is, I had a conversation with somebody today on Facebook. Um, he just found out that it's illegal to make alcohol in Ohio. Okay? And he means distillation. I think he was kind of funny. But, you know, my point was, people distill alcohol all over the country now. There's even stupid people that show you exactly how to do it on YouTube, doing it in their kitchen. Government in general doesn't bother anybody with this because they don't have time to. There's no money in it for them. And until somebody's out actually trying to pretend that it's the 1920s and they're running shine and, and then being stupid and selling it on Facebook, it generally just is left alone. But it's against the law. And there are people that say, well, that's bad. It's bad. And there are people that if you said, I do this, might turn you in. So does the guerrilla warrior say, dear opposing, write a letter, dear opposing general, at 7.30 a.m. this morning, I shall engage your troops from the western ledge of the cliffs as you pass through town. Please be so advised and prepare accordingly. Right? That sounds stupid. Well, when you, like, advertise that, hey, I'm not following this law, that's what you're doing. So if you're going to violate actual law, Shut up. I know it sounds obvious, but shut up. And I know there's people out there right now going, I can't believe that you'd be okay with people breaking the law. And the same people cheat on their taxes all the time. You're breaking the law. Well, I don't cheat on my taxes. Sure you do. So if you go to work for your, if you, if your next door neighbor comes to you and says, hey man, uh, do you know how to do brakes on a car? And you're like, yeah, I know how to do brakes on a car. Well, man, could you do my brakes on my car for me? I'm kind of broke right now. And they want a hundred bucks down at the break house, and, and and I got like twenty five bucks. And you might be like, "Well, I'll help you." He's like, I, "I don't. Can you just do it?" And if you thought, you know, I got some time, I'm gonna make twenty five, fifty bucks, whatever it is, and you did it, are you gonna report that income to the IRS? I know some of you are. Nobody listening to this show is going to. I know there's people that would, but you're not gonna do that. Well, you're breaking the law. When you drive in your car, and it says fifty five, do you always do fifty five or under? Now, you 65, you're breaking the law. You ever smoked weed in your life? Then you're breaking the law. My, my state legalized it, and I, you're breaking federal law. It's still federally illegal. It's not being enforced, but it's still illegal. This is another thing we have to get around our heads. The concept that something is morally wrong solely because there's a law against it is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. A lot of people that like kind of have this this wonderful view of Mahatma Gandhi, 
have no idea how the whole thing started with his march to the sea. The British had colonized India, and since the salt trade was so important, much like they forced the American colonists to buy tea from the British Tea Company, the Indians that were not colonists, they were in, you know, natives to their land under British occupation, were forced to buy salt through the British system and thereby create tariffs and things like that. But there had been a long history in India, you know, three sides with ocean, the people just made salt. Not hard to make salt, really, if you have an ocean nearby. You put ocean water in something, you evaporate it, and you get salt. So the British said, you cannot make salt. It is illegal. There was a law. You can't make salt. Were people that made salt immoral? What Gandhi did was say, I am marching to the sea, and when I get there, I'm going to make salt. And it put the British in a really difficult situation because they want to enforce their law. Of course, they have the entire world looking at you and you're going to throw somebody in prison for making salt. That is revolutionary thinking. It's also guerrilla warfare. It's also guerrilla warfare. So sometimes we keep our mouth shut, but if we're going to say what we're doing, then we better be strategic. And unless you're Gandhi, often it's better to be quiet Because I'll tell you what's going to happen. Let's take the distillation market, for example. It's following a lot of the same path that beer making did. So a lot of people don't realize this, but it was illegal to make your own beer in most of the country until the 70s. But by the 70s, there was a huge cohort of people making beer. And there was no Internet back then, so it was a lot harder for people to share information on. But they did. And shops started springing up, and people sold malt, which was perfectly legal. And they sold you know, malt extract. Especially grains and yeasts and bottles and, and airlocks and all types of stuff that was perfectly legal to sell. And, and it built up to a point where there was a whole industry and a whole community built around it. And the government had to ask itself, do, do, we, really, do we really want to fight this? Or do we just need to legitimize it because there's so many people already doing it and this is not a battle we want to fight? That's what distillation is going to happen. Like, There's probably more people distilling right now than there were people making home brew before that was made legal. And eventually it's going to get to the point, and they're still going to throw people in prison for it. Don't get me wrong before that happens. But that's one way that a guerrilla war is, 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 is won. The guerrillas are not always shooting and running away. A lot of times they're just doing whatever they want to do. And they spread their ideology to the point where all of a sudden the majority actually agree. And when you have a democracy, and God, I don't want to get into that again today. But when you have a democracy where the people that make the laws are elected by voting, eventually if the majority of people think a certain way, then politicians... Listen, I'm not even saying that the people then say, you guys better do this or we're going to vote you out of office. That doesn't work. That actually doesn't work very well. What ends up happening is politicians spend lots of money to figure out what people want to hear. And when somebody comes and goes, hey, Senator, I know you're close. You're close here on, on the polls. Like, you, this could go either way. We really need to run this campaign very smartly. Turns out people in Kentucky are really fond of the concept of the freedom to make their own moonshine. There's a big tradition with it and what have you. 
And uh, it doesn't really affect all the lobbyists. They might be a little pissed, but they'll get over it because you're selling out to them anyway. But if you came out in favor of creating a, a legalization path for this, you know, it might swing a couple more points in your direction. Isn't that what's happening with cannabis and hemp? That's what's happening. Like politicians are, it, it's not people driving the politicians. Politicians are seeing the popular support change and they pander to the popular support. So that's another way to fight a guerrilla war. And what we need to start thinking is totally different. We think of these, these words negative, radical, rebel, revolutionary, insurrectionist. We think of these as bad words. They're actually very positive things. No positive change, no freedom has ever been claimed with anything that wasn't considered radical, rebellious, revolutionary, insurrectionist, anarchist. It's always taken radical ideology to change things. Because the monkeys really think the fire hose is coming back to spray them with cold water, and they really think you can't get those bananas. They're not even willing to consider that, well, maybe the fire hose will come back. Okay, can we disable the fire hose? Can, what if we all did it at the same time? What if we came up with it? Like, they're not, it, the monkeys, the general sheep, are not into these kind of ideas. It takes a radical. It takes a radical to make these things happen. So we can either be radical and a target, that means out there in the open, or we can be a radical gorilla, which means basically we're making the changes in our own life, wherein as, as we can. This is not always, all, you know, like we talked about this thing. It's not always, it's not always with something that's illegal. Like I said, the majority of the controls are societal controls enforced by the monkeys. The kid from an upper middle class home with A's in high school who looks at his, you know, cousin who's 10 years older than him that spent seven years in school and owes a quarter million dollars in debt, who's now slinging lattes as a barista at Starbucks with a degree in, in 17th century literature, who's hoping to find a job somewhere someday, and says, I don't want to do this, and tells his parents, I'm not doing this, and goes to technical or trade school, or finds a company to apprentice at, or gets some hustle on, builds a side hustle, and creates a business. All of those... Tell me, in, in what world is that young person not radical, rebellious, revolutionary, and insurrectionist against the rules that were expected for him? What world? Do those words not apply to him? Of course they do. And, and that is the more important part than just the laws. I, just, I use the laws because if we can get you to think this way, well... There is a law that says I'm not supposed to do that, but that's not that doesn't mean it's morally imperative that I do that or not do that. And I don't care when somebody else breaks that law. I wouldn't turn somebody in for that, even if I would choose not to do it myself. I don't think somebody should go to jail for that. I don't think somebody should be fined for that. I don't think the state has any business in somebody's face because they got the audacity to make beer and heat it up and collect the steam. They had the audacity to put a seed in the ground and pick a, a flower bud off of a plant and eat it or smoke it or stick it up their ass. I don't care what they do with it. 
It's not my business. So if you get your head around that, then it becomes really easy to get your head around, oh, then all this other stuff that I supposedly have to do, I don't have to do. And it's always radical, rebellious, and revolutionary in the context of where and how it's done. There's a lot of ways to rebel. Do you know that building things today is an act of rebellion? Didn't used to be. It used to be that, like, you know, your, your grandparents built stuff all the time. But today, nobody builds anything for themselves. You call a company, they come build, they call a contractor, they come build something for you. Anything from building a shed in your backyard to building a garden to building a solar dehydrator to building a solar array, these are all acts of rebellion. I need something. Instead of going to the system, I'm going to create it for myself. And building isn't always maybe construction. Sometimes building is a real simple assemblage of things that are available for free or no money, you know, at least on the secondary market. When you're like, oh, I need this thing. And you first, your first thought is, here's your first act of rebellion. Well, do I need it? Or does society say that I need it? That's your first act of rebellion. Even if you end up deciding you need it, because you're not taught to think that way. See, thinking differently than you're trained is an act of rebellion. You're taught by the system that if you need something, you need it. So that first act of rebellion is, do I really need it? Yes, I do. Okay, I need it. Okay, do I need to procure it the way that everybody says that I'm supposed to? An education, right? Do I need an education beyond what I already have? No, I don't. I know enough to go start this path, and I'll, then I'll learn as I go. Or yes, I actually do. I need more education to be able to accomplish what I want in the world. Okay, so now I need the education. Well, what are you supposed to do? Get a loan and go to college. Well, wait a minute. The next act of rebellion is what are my other pathways to acquire this education? And even if you end up saying, well, I want to be a doctor, and I, and I have the aptitude, the skill set, the intelligence, the dedication, and that's what I want to be. I want to be a doctor. The fact that you're willing to ask those questions instead of just accept them, even in a self-evident pathway like becoming a doctor, is an act of rebellion. Everything that we do where we take control of a situation that generally is just part of a system is an act of rebellion. I think one of the most ultimate acts of rebellion is growing your own food. Now, again, it, it, this is crazy that this is the case. But, you know, when I was a kid, everybody had a garden. Now, even where I grew up, everybody doesn't have a garden. It's like, oh, wow, he has a garden. Now, no one's like, oh, he's a revolutionary. But what are you actually saying when you pick up a shovel, you dig out a bed, you put seeds in the ground, you care for it, you harvest it, you ingest it, you feed yourself, you save and or share the surplus so that other people can be fed too and so that you have food through the time of year you can't grow food. What are you actually saying when you do that? I will take responsibility for my own need for food. Tell me that's not a radical idea in 2019. Tell me that's not a radical idea. I mean, when you really start to break this all down, what you realize is how, how twisted 
the human mind has become by unnatural systems. See, all the things I'm talking about, like building things, this is a natural thing for humans to do. That's, that's what separates us from lower order primates. Yes, I know a chimp can take a stick and get termites out and simple tool building. They can't sit down with, with you know, a stick and dirt. We're not even going to go to pencil and paper, right? And draw out a diagram. That's simple of a thing. We'll put a stick here, we'll put a pole here and a pole here and a pole here and a pole there. That's for walls. And we'll attach this, that, and this. And then we'll make a roof. Can't do that. Can't do that. But humans can. And it's not like, well, humans couldn't. And then some magical thing called civilization came down from outer space, and then we could. This is a natural way for humans to behave. Walking through the woods and, and observing so that you learn that plant is medicine, that plant is food, and that plant is poison. It's completely normal human behavior. Walking through the woods and going, oh, look at those berries, and grabbing a few along the way is completely normal human behavior. And I've seen now people that actually, like, they're shocked by that. You just eat the food? Off the vine? Yeah. Don't you wash it? It's in the woods. It's not in the dirt. No animals are pissing on it. It's three feet in the air. Rained yesterday. You breathe the air that, that's around that blackberry. Why wouldn't they just... And even if when they eventually do, they're like almost scared, timid to eat the berry. The human behavior has become frightening to people. That's how twisted we've become. Can you imagine a person from 500 years ago, especially a hunter-gatherer society where it had, been, had not been disrupted yet, <coughs> brought forward into our time and you explained how society works? So what you're going to do, you're going to spend the first five years of your life completely under captivity. You're going to have very little freedom. Your parents are going to look after you, whatever. They might be like, okay, basically that I understand. But the level of control might be frightening to them a little bit. A little bit more freedom, but okay. So then what happens? Like, do I start, like, do I go out and do something? Oh, yeah, you go to this place called school. Oh, okay. Well, what's school? What's where you learn? How long do I go there? 13 years. What? 13 years. Well, what am I going to learn? Reading, writing, and math. This takes 13 years. Well, yeah, to do it right. So then when I'm done with all this, I'm going to be like 18 years old. Yeah, that's about average. Okay. Well, you get, you get judged the entire time. I get judged. Yeah, well, like whether you learned or not. Well, how do I get judged? We give you a grade, A, B, C, D, E, or F, right? You know, A, B, C, D, or F. Uh, okay. And what does this really mean? Well, if you want to go to the next school, you have to have A's and B's. Too many C's and you don't get to go. The whole time. Well, we tell you that, but really all that matters is the grades you get in the last four years of those 13 years. And really the only grades that matter there is the final grade for the class. Okay. And when I'm done with all this, am I qualified to do anything? Well, not really. You're qualified to go to another school. So do I learn how, like these things, I see these things running around. What are they called? They're called cars. Do I learn how to fix those? No. Okay. Um... So I, I, so am I qualified for a job? Yeah, but only the jobs that really suck. So I, I do this for 13 years, and you haven't even taught me how to do something like 
fix a car, or build a house. Yeah, you got to go to this place called college or like a, another kind of school to learn stuff like that. Okay, and so if I don't want to do this, if I don't want to take that path, then what? Oh, you have to. What, what do you, you mean I have to? What if, what if my parents say I don't have to? Oh, no, you have to. Men will come and make you go. What? For 13 years, yeah. And after that, do I have to go to these other schools? No, you don't have to, but everybody will think you're basically a loser if you don't. Can you? I mean, I could keep going. But can you imagine how, let's say, a person living, a Native American, from 500 years ago, would view today if you explain it that way to them? They sound like the most horrific form of slavery ever. And, and we have just done that in every walk of life. And because of that, we have twisted our minds to the point where we now plan out deaths instead of saving for retirement. We don't really plan retirement anymore. They call it retirement planning. But everything in retirement planning is predicated on the concept we want to make sure that you have enough money so that you can live until you die. Every financial advisor you'll talk to, especially the financial liars, you know, your consumer level guys, that's what they're going to map out. So your retirement age is going to be 72. Wait, 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 what's 72? Well, you're young. You, you know, it just keeps getting older. So then, you know, your average life expectancy is about 72. So you could kick off right there. But, you know, most people that make it to 72, if you're in good health, you're going to make it to around 92 to 96. So you're going to be in retirement for 20 to 25 years. This is how much money you'll have. This is how much money you'll have to spend based on our projections. And so, yeah, you will or you will not have enough money to die. How freaking morbid. And I know you might be thinking, well, from a practical standpoint, Jack, what's the alternative? How about the alternative is, how do I build enough wealth that that number becomes irrelevant? Well, that's fanciful. Well, not if I don't live my entire life in debt. It's not. Why don't I plan for a life where when I retire... I don't owe anybody shit. Where if, if by some miracle Social Security is still around, I actually could live on it comfortably. When I build my life so I have resiliency under the lowest performance but work for the highest, why do I do that? Well, because nobody does that. Because everything in the system is predicated on conformance to the system. I mean, the big thing is, and I, I hope I've explained this to you guys over the years enough times, there's so many things that you think you have to do that you don't do. One of my favorite writers of all time is a guy named Richard Bach. And his two best books came out back-to-back -back over a couple years. First was a very, very simple book. It was called Jonathan Livingston Siegel. I think I believe it came out in 68. And I won't get into it, but that was the first book. And the second book, where this comes from, is called Illusions. The Confessions of a Reluctant Messiah. Now, Bach is a pilot, and he used to fly like old like biplanes, like kind of World War I era, maybe between the wars, like between World War I and World War II, that type of plane. Wood frame, skinned wings, etc. And for a little while, he bounced around some farmlands and took people on rides for three bucks a, a ride. And he had a big imagination, and in his imagination he imagined... What would it be like if a Jesus Christ type character came to the world today 
and showed up in my field. And he played this mental game that became this book. And so he describes, he tells the story as though he had this guy named Don Shimoda with him the whole time that was the Christ figure, the Messiah that came to free the world. And one day he says to Richard during one of, to, to Donald during, Richard says to Donald during one of their discussions, how do you have all the answers? How do you know all these things? And, and Donald says, they give you a book. He says, what? So they give you a book. It's a master's book. He pitches him this little book, and he starts looking at the book, and it's just a, a, a book of sayings, random phrases. And Richard said, well, how's it work? He goes, all you do is hold whatever problem or, or thought you have in your mind really, really strong and just open the book, and whatever you need to see will be there. And Richard says, oh, it's a magic book. Don says, Dad, you could do it with anything. You do a comic strips. You could, it, as long as you learn how to read right and understand what you're asking, you'll always get an answer. This is just kind of a shortcut. So one of the sayings in the book is the best way to avoid responsibilities is to say, I've got responsibilities. So your first responsibility, and we've been so twisted that we don't understand this anymore. Your first responsibility is to yourself. People call that selfish. Well, if everybody did that, kids would just starve to death. Well, that's just stupid. So if my first responsibility is to myself, the first thing is that I know that having children that I don't want to be a father to will damage my responsibility to myself. So I'm not even going to have kids unless I want to. If I really make my first responsibility to myself. If I do want children, then I'm going to think, well, I need to be able to take care of them. So I'm going to set up my life so that I can take care of my kids. And my first responsibility to myself in taking care of my stepson, Matthew, was I chose willingly to become his father, and I chose willingly to take care of him. And it would have made me absolutely miserable if he didn't have the basic things in his life that he needed, if he wasn't given the proper discipline by me so that by the time he grew up, he could be a grown man and take care of himself. All those things would have made me miserable. So it was completely in my self-interest to, to, to take good care of him. Do you see how that works? Most people are moral and decent. And if you're moral and decent, the worst thing you can do is not put your needs first. Because you can't do all the shit you think you need to do for other people unless your needs are fulfilled. Now, that is completely backwards from what society teaches you. But isn't there a little piece of you right now, if you've never heard me speak on this before, going, that is so true? Because it is a human concept. We know this as human beings. That's why they tell you on an airplane, put your mask on before you assist the child next to you. And you'll hear some stupid-ass mommy the hell with dad. I'm taking care of my kid first. So when you pass out, who takes care of your kid now? Your kid's going to be able to figure out how to do this? Your kid can go a couple extra seconds until she gets her mask or he gets his mask. It's not a problem. It's not like it can't be done. It's not like they're going to die in that period of time. Even if they pass out, you put oxygen on them, they'll come back, be all right. You pass out, even if they got their mask on, now what? Who takes care of them now? We must act in our self-interest. And we do. 
in general, humans do act in their own self-interest. Everything that people do that they think is so sacrificial for other people generally is driven by the things that people value the most. But when we become convinced by society that even thinking that way is wrong, we begin to make mistakes with it. We begin to damage ourselves. And when we do have those minutes of clarity, those moments of clarity where we say, hey, I'm going to go take care of this shit because it's important to me to do it, then we have guilt for behaving in a positive way. And then we wonder why we're so screwed up. We wonder, like, do you ever look at how controlled society is and go, how in the hell are people this easily controlled? Well, think about what I just said. How could you expect anything else? You really don't have to do many of the things that you think you do. You have to figure out which ones you don't want to do, though, because you don't not do something out of spite. That's not work. See, that's why that's also not in your self-interest. As much as I come down on education today, especially higher education, and I come down on higher education because I've had people that had straight A's from college come work for me, and they're idiots, and they can't do anything. I also don't want a doctor that says he learned everything on the Internet. So there's two sides of that coin. So you have to figure out, like, is this my path or not? It can't be your path because society says so. It also can't not be your path because you want to rebel against society, right? If you're a rebel, if you're an insurrectionist, you, you rebel against the things you disagree with. Like, you don't go like, well, since the enemy breathes oxygen, I'm going to start breathing CO2 because, you know, I don't want to breathe oxygen. They are pro-oxygen, so I am now anti-oxygen. Like, I know I'm going to an extreme, but that's... You have to understand that when you make decisions, you can't be like, I think college sucks because Jack thinks college sucks, so I'm not going. I didn't say college sucks. I said a lot of colleges suck. A lot of people who go to college don't belong there. That path is so right for some people that they should take it. But that doesn't mean you have to do it with debt. You know, you could save a lot of money by doing two years at junior college and making sure your credits are transferable. A lot of money. If, you're, if you actually have the aptitude to be going there in the first place, you can knock out almost a year of college for free in most high schools now. That's an act of rebellion. You really need to get in touch with the motivation that makes you do things you don't want to do. you got to figure out what it is. That's making you live your life in a way that you know you shouldn't. And that's whether because it's a societal conformity type thing or a, a, a bad behavior. It truly is a bad behavior. Like it's interfering with your life. Like I like to have an adult beverage. But if you are getting drunk off your ass every night and then you're lethargic in the morning and you can't think, you have a problem. And you're going to blow up your liver and you're going to die even before you do that, you're not going to be able to fulfill your highest agenda and goals. So that's a poor behavior. Now, society might look down on someone that's a drunk, but think about this. this society looks less down on the drunk, who's at least a functional drunk, than they do a lot of times on the casual recreational drug user where that drug, let's say cannabis, affects their life a lot less than does a drunk because the cannabis is legal, and the alcohol is legal. 
So you have to make those determinations, whether it's society that you're choosing to, to not conform to or your own bad behaviors. When they're adversely affecting your lives or affecting the lives of those around you. And I, I know somebody just said, well, if you're worried that it's adversely affecting the lives of somebody around you, but you're supposed to act in your own self-interest, this is not a conflict. No. No. Because if you're a father and a substance abuse problem is preventing you from doing a good job as a father, that's not in your self-interest. Sure, it's not in the best interest of your child, but it's also not in your own self-interest. Now, if someone somewhere is ass-hurt because you won't live your life the way they think you should, that's a different thing. And you have to separate those things, the things that truly are not in your best interest and the things that truly are. And people get really scared about this because they're so programmed. But I can make it clear. It is not in your best interest to go jump off a cliff. You're probably not going to. And it would be fun until you hit the ground, but you know the consequences, so you're not going to do it. And if everything in life was like that, the consequences were immediate and harsh, we would do what's in our best interest all the time. We actually fail to do what's in our best interest because we can get away with it. Think about health and nutrition. If you were walking down the road and you saw a guy just fall over and die and you ran over to help him and you said, what happened? I can't, can I help him? The guy said, no, you can't help him. And he said, well, what happened to him? He said, ah, you know what? This morning I told him not to. He ate really crappy food and he didn't work out one day. And he died. You'd eat good food and work out every day because it would be in your self-interest. Well, getting good exercise and eating right is in your self-interest, but because you can get away with it. We fail to work in our own self-interest because we can get away with it. We, we, we enjoy the fall and just hope the cliff is really high and we don't hit the ground until we're 98. And society has taught us to think this way. You have to change motivation to do the things you don't want to do into the motivation to do the things that you do want to do. You have to make the motivation into a positive force. And a lot of that can be summed up with the concept of you tell people to figure out what they want in their life, they don't know. So make a list of all the, make 20 goals for your life, 20 things you want to have more of or you want in your life you don't have any of right now. What are those 20 things? And people generally, like, they might come up with a couple high-level items, but they really have a hard time really, you know, if they've ever thought about it, what do I really want in my life? You say, what do you, what do you don't want in your life? I don't want a boss that's a dick. I don't want a bunch of debt anymore. I don't want to have to work so hard. Okay, so you want either a good boss or you want to work for yourself. You want to be debt-free. And you want financial independence. Yeah, sure. Put that on your list, right? So the motivation that makes you do the negative can be flipped over to the motivation that makes you do the positive. I conform too much. Okay, well, then let's figure out the things you're conforming to that really are not in your self-interest. And then let's use that motivation to figure out, well, what would be in my best interest? And I know a lot of people, you're still, no matter how times I've explained this, every time I say acting your self-interest, you're, you're getting a little twitch in your neck, like a little nerve twitching behind your right ear, like, ugh, ugh. get over that shit. Be a good rebel, man. Be a good insurrectionist. Acting your self-interest. And you're going to find that unless you are psychotic, 
acting in your self-interest is almost always the good decision. Because all of the things that we think of as being the bad decisions that end up with really negative consequences in our life are therefore not in our self-interest. If you see, you go walk into a bank, and it looks like nobody's paying attention, and they left the vault open, and there's a big stack of bills sitting there, and you think I can just run in there, grab them, and run out, you're not acting in your self-interest. Now, you might think that you are, because if I get away with it, then I have all this money. The odds that you're going to get away with it, even if it's set up just that way, are infinitesimally low. And your best self-interest would be to find somebody in the bank and go, Hey, idiots, look what you've done. That's the best thing you could do for yourself. And find a new bank. See, see what I'm saying? You've got to get to that point, and it's that motivation change that does that. And it all comes back to what I've teach almost, you know, Constantly, almost a little bit in every episode. Life is a sliding scale. And you're on it. And all you have to figure out once you know that you're on that sliding scale is what direction are you going. And what I mean by that is people kind of think that it's, it's possible to be stagnant in life. To just kind of reach a point and stay there. Homeostasis. You know, I have everything that I want. All I want to do is keep what I have. And just be passive. Be happy. But we age and we get old. And what we can do, in some levels gets stronger and in other levels it declines. Specifically physically. No matter how many times they show you a picture of some old guy with, you know, big pecs or something. You know, when we're 80, we're not capable of doing what we did when we were 40. And when we're 40, generally, we're not capable of doing what we did when we were 25 physically. Even if we're in good shape, the human body breaks down over time. So that alone means that if you look at life and a human being trying to be static, life slides behind them. That's what I mean by a sliding scale, like a slide ruler. So the only thing that you can do to prevent life from pushing you backwards is to be proactively moving forward so as life slides behind you, you at least maintain or pull away from where you are. You always, that's what I mean when I say that. You always have to be taking a proactive role for your future. You always have to be working so that you have more freedom, or next year you'll have less. You always have to be working so that you have more wealth, or next year you'll have less. You have, always have to be working to either stay out of or pay off debt, or next year you'll have more. You always have to be working to build more knowledge, or next year you'll have less. Now that's the one a lot of people pause on. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Jack. I got you now. I have the knowledge that I have. Assuming that I don't forget it, I have the same amount of knowledge, and you're wrong. Yeah, but life moved behind you. One, we do suffer some cognitive loss of memory over time. But two, the world changes. And therefore, the knowledge you had last year, at least some portion of it, is now no longer totally relevant to today's reality. In 1985, the concept that your teacher told you when you were in grade school, that you will not have a calculator everywhere you go, was a valid statement. It was a statement of knowledge. I know the world as it is today. I know the world as it is today. And I see people all the time. 
And they have to do math without a calculator. So I can clearly state that you, young John, in 2010, won't have a calculator everywhere you go. And young John didn't know the teacher was wrong. Because today, and even in 2010, it's an iPhone, the calculator. And a computer has a calculator in it. And literally, there is a calculator everywhere that I go. So that was a lack of what was coming. A lack of understanding. I'm sure the excuse is probably still used by math teachers today, even though it's not true anymore, patently. But the teacher that made that statement in 1985 believed it. They didn't know that every person would walk around with a phone and the least used function on that phone would be the phone. They had no knowledge of that. So if you take somebody from 1985 and you bring them all the way ahead to 2019... And they have all the knowledge from 1985. Has life not moved their knowledge backwards? And we took it to an extreme so you can understand it, but it happens all the time. That's why I'm big on the learn one new thing every day philosophy. You have to, and the other thing is, and this is conclusively proven by science. This is actually settled science. The more we learn, the more we retain, including that which we have already learned. The act of learning. And it's it, because we age, because more and more difficult to form new synapses in our mind. But every time we do, we strengthen our hold on the knowledge that we already have, and we also insulate ourselves from change. Life is that sliding scale. You're on it, and that's what it means. There is no area of your life that if it's important to you, you should not be doing something today for so that you have more of it tomorrow, or if it's a negative, so that you have less of it tomorrow. And if you don't, life will move you in the wrong direction. And so my final thought for you today, my final question for you, is what would you do if you could do anything that you wanted? But I, I, really, I want you to think about it this way. Jack Spirico shows up at your house and says, Tom, Jill, Mike, Sam, whatever your name is, um, I just had somebody come to me and say that I've made such a huge impact on the world they gave me a hundred million dollars but the catch is I only keep keep Ted and I had to pick nine people to give ten million dollars to and I choose you here's ten million dollars what would you do what would you do and as long as you're sincere things like well I would give my brother You know, $100,000, pay off his house or whatever. Fine. Right? What would, what would you do? What would you do? But eventually you're going to get to a point where like, well, oh, I'd spend this money on this and this on that. But there'd be a point where you'd say, well, what I want to make sure of is I don't squander this. So I would have a certain percent that I would never spend that would be put in some sort of investments that would produce enough income for me for me to live very comfortable for the rest of my life. Now what would you do? That's the important one. Now what would you do? Where would you live? What would it be like there? What would you do when you woke up in the morning? You, when you don't have to wake up anymore, what would motivate you to get up? What's well, tomorrow, stupid? No, come on. Think. Be a little deeper of a human being. What would, what would you be excited to get up for? What would you do? Well, I'd never work again. Yeah, you would. Unless you're, unless you're to the point where you're really done 
You know, you're at the point where you physically just don't want to work anymore. And even then, most people in that situation would do something. What would you do? Not for money, but what would you do? How would you fill the hours of your day? I mean, I love to fish as much as anybody, guys. I really love to fish. But I don't want to fish eight hours a day, seven days a week. Do you know why? I'll stop loving it if I do it that much. You know, my scenario like that would probably be I'd live somewhere where I could fish right out my back door. And I would probably fish almost every morning for an hour or two. I got a lot of day ahead of me after that. What would I do? I would set my life up so that I could teach as many people as possible that wanted to learn. I would set my life up so that I have as much independence and freedom in my life as possible. I would spend my time surrounded by animals. Right? I would grow food. And I would try to learn as much as I could about all of the subjects in life that are important to me. Hunting, fishing, gardening, survival skills. I'd spend my life being a lifetime student and learning as much as I can and then turning around and changing how it's formatted to make it more accessible to other people and teach as many people as possible who wanted to learn because the most important thing to me in my life is to have a positive impact on others. So that's what I would do. Gee, no shit. Guess what? Isn't that what I do? Okay, I don't go fishing every morning. I also don't have $10 million. But guess what? I go fishing pretty much whenever I really, really want to. I'll be taking my grandson to a really cool flipping place this week while he's on spring break, and I won't be working when I do it. I didn't have to ask anybody's permission for that. I reach 200,000 people a day with a microphone and a free piece of software. Why? I figured out what I wanted in my life, and I built the closest thing I could get with the means and limits that I had because it didn't matter what society said. If I would have went to somebody that was successful as a broadcaster, especially in 2008 when I started this, and said, this is what I want to do. I want to build a media empire. I want to reach people all over the world with an audio program. I want to teach them about all these things. The first thing I would have said is, well, you're going to have to be much more defined in your niche. You can't go this broad. You can't be on the air talking about money one day and gardening the next and then side hustles the next and then guns the next and then CBD oil the next and then permaculture the next. Bullshit. Yes, I can. Right, But that's what they would have said. And they would have said, you know, you need to get into some kind of a internship program, maybe get a degree in broadcasting or communications. Like th That would have been the path. Dude, do you think that path would have ever really led to anything like I have today? Do you really think it ever could have? Do you think going to school to study broadcasting and schlepping coffee for some jackass on the night hours and waiting for maybe two years of doing that to get on the air for a couple hours a day could have ever resulted in what TSP is today. And all of the things that came from it, the forum, the Facebook forum, the Zello group, the individual stake groups, the meetup groups, the workshops. You know, my buddy David, who helped me put the aquaponics system back in, in my greenhouse, I said to him, I said, you know what, I think it's time for that system to come out. 
I kind of feel bad. Like, he really built the whole thing. And, like, I've built other ones now, and it's just that greenhouse makes more sense as an open 12 by 12 greenhouse than a tightly packed aquaponics system now. Like, it's time to make a change. And what he said was, how many systems do you think that system created? And the answer is hundreds. Does that happen if I get a degree in broadcasting? Does that happen if I'm on AM radio or FM radio? We went up to Nicole Sauce's place. Nicole, look at Nicole as a case study in this. The impact you have that you never plan by doing what you put yourself in. This was my self-interest to build this thing I have. You can't say in any way that I did not follow my self-interest. I sit here on my little farm. I got my ducks. I got my fish tanks around. I got my family. My wife has our grandchildren to take care of every day. She's going to basically be the stay-at-home mom she wanted to be when her kids were little and couldn't be. I mean, this is all my self-interest. This is all for me. But the motivation was helping others. So Nicole is just a great example. She has her coffee business. Do you know that happened? I said, why don't you come down here and talk about something? I want to talk about roasting coffee. Fine, come show people how to roast coffee. She comes down here, stands in front of 40 people, and says, I don't want to make coffee into a full-time business. I don't you know, even want to take it up. I just like making a little bit of coffee. And she said, as she said it, she thought, oh, shit. I'm going to do this. Next thing you know, she's running a Kickstarter. She's getting an air roaster. She's building a trailer. And she's building yet another business. So, then she looks at what I'm doing down here with the workshop and says, I could do that shit. But I don't know. And then I say, you know what? I'm really not doing the big workshops in the spring anymore. I'm going to one a year. She says, well, shit, if he's not going to do spring, I'll do spring. Let him do fall. She starts her workshops. So, David and I go up there. We build another aquaponics system. Nicole, Jake, all those guys, you're part of the Zello crew and all, they have the Get Shit Done crew, they call it. Which, that sounds familiar. It sounds like it comes from Richette Ag or something, right? Another thing out of the community. And they have all these people to get together and do stuff. And they've built a shit ton of aquaponics systems. And when you look at them, you go, even when they change things up, you see, there's the core. That's what we built there at that one workshop for people. And then it replicates itself. You know what? For David and I, at her workshop, we were much happier building an aquaponics system than just dilling around. We wanted something to do. We acted in our self-interest. We also acted in Nicole's interest because we liked Nicole and we wanted to help her out. But because we did that, that had a catalyst. Does that happen if I go to broadcasting school? If I was on the air right now and go, the reason you should listen to me is I have a degree in broadcasting from the University of Pennsylvania. You'd say, I don't give a flying shit, Jack. I want to know what gun to buy my kid for their first 22 rifle. Do you know that, dumbass? But I do know. I do know because I grew up as a kid that got his first gun and, 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 you know, and it got my kid his first gun. Shared my life experiences. So what would you do if you could do anything you wanted? You'll, ne you'll never have somebody just show up and go, here's $10 million. If you think Publishers Clearinghouse is coming, they're not. But if it did... If I gave you $10 million, $20 million, whatever it is you need to make everything negative in your life that you can get rid of with money go away and to wake up in the morning and go, well, damn, I can do anything I want to do. What am I going to do? What would you do? Now go build the closest thing to that you can. 
Do not let perfect be the enemy of the good. Go build the closest thing you can. Because here's the truth. When you wake up tomorrow, you really can do anything you want. You really can. Now, that doesn't mean that actions don't have consequences and bad choices might not resort in bad results, right? But you really do have the freedom to do whatever you want, so get building. Build what you want in life. I, I hate to put it this way, because it actually shows how far we've fallen as what was once the freest nation ever conceived of on the planet. But today, doing what you most want to do in the way that is best for you and the best for those that you care about and love is an act of insurrection. So stand up and be an insurrectionist. Stand up and be an insurrectionist and take your life back and live it however you want to and design the life that you want because if you don't, someone else is designing it for you. The system is a, a method of design. If we take a vine and we plant it against a wall, that vine will grow up the wall. That's what the vine does. The vine can't think for itself. If we plant it and it's not near a wall, it will spread across the ground. If we plant it near a fence, it will grow up a fence, and they grow laterally across the fence. The system creates the way that the vine grows, because the vine can't think for itself. The system that we have of governance, self-policing monkeys, financial institutions, the education system, the distribution system, the total system of economics... All of that, and what we call societal norms, is the wall that you grow up, whether it's in your best interest to or not. Unless, unlike the vine, you actually think for yourself and say, and the vine might be really suited for the wall. That might be a great wall for that vine to grow on. It might become a strong vine and make lots of children if it goes up that wall. That wall also might be a bad wall. For that vine. It can't make that determination. You can. As my grandfather used to say, use the gray matter between your ears they call a brain and think for yourself. Because if you don't, society will be happy to do so on your behalf. With that, we've wrapped up another show. I hope you enjoyed this one. I want to remind you guys that you can always support our show really easily. This is a thing that you can do So simply, just do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com. Go there. You can see all the stuff that I use, that I buy, that I spent my own money on, on Amazon. And you can buy those items. Or you can just check out the deals of the day. Whatever you do, you start there. You help support us no matter what you eventually buy. Today's item of the day is Davidson's Peppermint. You get a pound of it for not a lot of money. Peppermint. Jack, you just talked about growing your own food, it. Why would you buy peppermint? Well, because I drink a lot of tea. I drink a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of tea. And I value my time. And I make a lot of different tea blends, and peppermint goes in a lot of them. So I will sometimes walk outside with a steaming cup of hot water, grab a few sprigs of peppermint, and throw it in there. But when I want to make up a quart jar of a tea blend that has peppermint in it, I don't really have the time to go out and dry and peel and crumble and stack, you know, a quarter of a quart of peppermint. I, I just don't have time for it. So I buy a good quality or organic product like Davidson's, and I just have my peppermint. 
And that lets me do things like one of my favorite things to do for people is to make tea blends and give them away. I don't have, I wouldn't be doing as much of it, man, if I had to grow it all. So it's not really about growing it. It's about processing it for me. And it's just a really good quality product. Davidson's in general, if you're looking for tea in bulk, especially individual, like, you know, a specific green tea or a specific herb to do blends with, Davidson's is a fantastic supplier. Check them out. Remember, if it's a tea spaz, I own it. I spent my money on it. I'm recommending it to you only because I'd spend my own money on it again or it wouldn't be there. And you can always support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day today. And uh, song of the day today is The Heart from Your Hate by Trivium. And uh, I really didn't know this band, and I didn't know this song. And I certainly, when I first looked at it on the surface, didn't know what it was about. So when I looked it up, this song is about how... We had people in World War II of Japanese descent in the United States military fighting a war for their country. And at the same time, the family they left at home to go off and fight a war were in internment camps. FDR put Japanese Americans in internment camps. I don't want to say concentration camps because they weren't killing them there or anything like that, but it was definitely prison camps and held them there for the majority of the war because they looked different than us. So it was possible that they were working for the Japanese instead of us. And the guy that wrote the song from Trivium said, I wonder how much does it take for us to look at someone and accept that they're one of us. And he said, there's no way that I would be out fighting for any country that locked up my family for the way they looked. And yet these men did. And I think we are living at a time in the world today where we really do need to start asking ourselves some serious questions. Why is it that we conform so much. And one way that we can form is the hatred of people that are different than us. And I know a lot of you are thinking, well, I don't necessarily hate other people, but eh, there you go. Um, hatred is not an absolute. Hatred is like a dimmer switch. How much hate? And I know some of you maybe will struggle with that right now, but I'm, I'm going to tell you. You know, do you hate politicians? Yeah. Do you hate someone that molested 12 little girls and killed them all and buried them in a hole and took them from their family more? Yeah, okay, hatred's like a dimmer switch. Hatred's like a dimmer switch. But the reality is, hatred is also a toxin for the person experiencing the hate. There's a point where you have to accept the things you can't change and focus on the things you can. And you can't worry that this person over here might be bad. Or this person over here thinks this other person's bad and they shouldn't. What you control, what we talked about all day today, is yourself and the things immediately around you. And when you find yourself immediately reacting negatively, not just to a certain group of people, but to any individual or any concept, stop and check yourself. You might end up Right back where you started, you might be like, you know what, I'm right about this. This person or this thing is a horrible thing. Don't be afraid to question it, though. 
to examine it. If you do that, you'll find yourself being a happier person, accomplishing more, and doing more good things for more people at the same time. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Too long. What will it take to rip the heart from your?